This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. If you brought your Bible with you this morning, you can turn there. It's found on page 466 of the Bibles in your rows and is printed in your order of worship if you'd like to follow along. Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundance of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad that you could be here to worship with us this morning. We have been, for the last, well, I guess five weeks or so, looking at the Psalms here during the summer, and particularly Psalms in the 30s. And originally I titled this sermon, Praying Your Worry, but that's actually not a great title because this is a wisdom psalm, which means it's not addressed to God in the form of a prayer, but rather it's addressed to you all, to all of us, in the form of teaching. And secondly, it's not, uh, it's not a good title because it's not about worry in general, and there are biblical texts about worry, anxiety in general, but Psalm 37 is about, uh, it's not about worry in general, it's about a specific kind of worry. The psalmist calls it fretting. I wonder if you heard it even as Cheryl was reading it for us. It comes up repeatedly here. Verse 1, it says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Verse 7, be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. And then the second half of verse 8, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. So this psalm is not about worry in general, but about a particular kind of worry that David calls fretting. And I don't know how often you use that word, but it really is kind of a great word. Uh, we talk about a fretful person, talk about getting yourself into a fret, but what does it mean? It means to be anxious. It's an anxious, gnawing anger. It also has the connotation of wearing you down, wearing away at you. In fact, we actually even use the word fret in English that way when we talk about the waves fret at the seafront or fret at the seashore, wear away. And so what, what is David talking about here? What is Psalm 37 saying that might be wearing us down, might be gnawing us away, causing us to anxiously fret? Well, the second half of verse 1 gives us the answer. It says, be not envious because of evildoers or wrongdoers. 
Now, verse 35, and by the way, you might want to have your Bibles open for this. We just read the first 11 verses, but I'm really going to be referring to the whole of Psalm 37. Uh, But verse 35, it gives us a great visual image of what we're talking about here. In verse 35, David says, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Uh, My son Crosley and I were hiking at uh, the creek at French Park last weekend. He was mostly focused on getting as muddy as possible and uh, splashing around as much as possible. But I kept trying to get him to look up at the trees because it's that time of year uh, when the trees are amazing in Cincinnati, when they're green, they're prospering, they're covered in leaves, they're stretching wide and stretching high. And I kept trying to get him to look up at these magnificent things. Well, Psalm 37 says, it seems like evil is flourishing in our world like a spreading tree, like June in Cincinnati, like a spreading tree. And people that go along with that evil conform themselves to that evil. They seem to flourish in our world too. Now, what is a laurel tree? I don't know. (laughs) And actually, it doesn't matter uh, because it doesn't actually say laurel tree in Hebrew. And the translators just sort of throw that one out there. I'm not sure exactly why. But in fact, in your Bible, there's a clue to this. Um, There's a little footnote in almost every English translation. You'll see this down the bottom. It'll say something like, the identity of this tree is uncertain. I don't know why they said laurel tree, but do you know what it actually says in Hebrew? It's the word for a native tree. That is a tree that is native to that area where it's being planted as opposed to one that's transplanted in from somewhere else. Now, why would David use that term? The translators, I guess, don't think it's that important. They substitute in laurel tree here. But I don't think they're giving David enough credit. You've got to remember, David was a tree expert. He famously built a wooden palace. And you can read about all the great care he took with the different kinds of wood that were put in the different parts of the palace. His biggest international alliances were about the trade of timber, Have you heard of the cedars of Lebanon before? The Psalms are full of trees in David's poetry. And so I believe David uses this term purposefully. Being a native tree is actually a big deal. Native trees usually grow the best. Native trees sink their roots into the soil and they find everything there that they need. The climate is right. The soil is right. The drainage is right. The whole ecosystem is set up for a native tree to flourish. In fact, you know, I was learning this week, was, this was new to me. Um, tree roots actually only do about half the job in terms of nourishment, water for the tree. The rest of the job is done by fungus that grows along the tree, sometimes on the part that's above the ground, but very often on the parts that are below ground. So you plant a tree that's foreign to the area, and they usually are just stuck to rely on their roots alone. The fungus doesn't sort of grow on them. But you plant a native tree, and the fungus says, hello, old friend, you know, and and, uh, it says, I know you, and begins to grow along that tree. They know each other. They work together. The tree then has an easier time of prospering. When we moved into our house here in Norwood, the previous owners had planted a peach tree in our backyard, and we were pretty excited about that. I mean, who doesn't love, you know, Juicy, wonderful peach. And people go crazy over that peach truck thing that comes through town, right? Like, well, that's what we're thinking. We don't need a peach truck. We got one in our backyard. Well, so year one, the spring, you know, things are looking good. The peaches are blooming. We're really excited for this. 
And then the darn squirrels got to him. Before we even got, we didn't get one peach because they ate them all before they were ripe. So then next year, we're leading up to this, we're ready for the squirrels, right? Humane ways, we're going to be ready for the squirrels. But we're ready for this, right? We're going to get our peaches. Everything looks good. The peaches are beginning to bloom. And then it's Cincinnati. So April, we get a snow and two weeks of frost and freezing. Every one of them dies. We don't get a single peach again. All right, year three. This is going to be the year, right? Tree's dead. (laughs) But I read they sometimes go dormant. Year four, really excited. I'm an optimist by nature, right? Year four, still dead. (laughs) Year five, which was this spring, my kids chopped down the tree. Point being, peach trees are not native to this area. This one did not make it, right? That's a very long introduction, but here's the point. Psalm 37 is telling us we look at this world and it seems like wicked, ruthless people can just sort of slot in to how things run here and and like native trees, they flourish. Everything is set up for them. The climate is right. The soil is right. It looks like they belong. But on the other hand, the righteous, the generous, the just, the meek, They look like they're from another land altogether. Psalm 37 is for the person who wants to trust God when it feels like the world favors the unrighteous. And we see this and we're tempted to fret. And so David says, Psalm 37, verse 1, fret not yourself because of evildoers. And Derek Kidner, one of the commentators, says, as a bare command, that would be of very little use to us. But it is reinforced by reasoned encouragements. And so I want to think about what are those reasoned encouragements that help us to fret not. And we see three things. I'm kind of taking a whole bunch of things and putting them under three rubrics this morning. We're going to talk about a posture that we all need to have. We are going to talk about a providence in which we need to trust. And then finally, a perspective that we will use to see. A posture you need to have, a providence to trust, a perspective with which to see. All right, so first, let's talk about the posture. Verse 10, David says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. In other words, though it looks like evil and injustice are native to this world, that's not the whole story. Verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Even if you've never heard this verse before or read Psalm 37 before, maybe you recognize that language a little bit. Jesus begins his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, by saying, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He's quoting Psalm 37, verse 11. But we don't think about meekness very much, do we? But just by show of hands, how many of you have used the word meek in the last year? There were like three in the first service. I see none. Maybe a half. I saw a half arm uh, in this one. Me neither. But maybe we should. Because this appears to be a pretty important quality. I mean, do you hear what Psalm 37 verse 11 is saying? Do you hear what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5? Though it looks like evil flourishes now, when all is said and done, when the dust settles, it will be the meek who are left standing. It's going to be the meek who inherit the earth. Fret not, instead, put on meekness. Now, what does it mean to be meek? 
Well, these first 11 verses give us a little bit of an insight into what that is. Well, first it has to do with being oriented toward God. Derek Kidner again, he says, an obsession with enemies and rivals cannot simply be switched off, but it can be ousted with a new focus of attention. David says, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. This is a deliberate redirection of emotion, focus, and attention. And if you are looking for a project this summer, a spiritual project, this would be a good one for you to be thinking about. Think about what does it mean for you to train your heart to delight in the Lord? You think about yourself, think about it with your housemates or your family. What does it mean to train your heart to delight in the Lord? How do you do that? Well, reading the Psalms, for one thing, asking and contemplating, meditating on what the Lord has done for you, asking yourself, how has the Lord treated you? How has the Lord been kind and faithful to you? List these things. Direct your attention to those things. And then ask other people those same kinds of questions. Hear their stories. And let it mount the ways the Lord has been kind. Delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, David says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. And sometimes when we say commit, we mean like be all in, be committed. But that's actually not what it means here. Here, commit your way to the Lord means something more like giving things over to the Lord. In Hebrew, it's actually the word for roll. As in letting a burden roll off of you and roll on to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. You see, the meek understand that there is a God and you're not him. And that is a freeing thing. Because when you're fretting, you're tending to take on the responsibility for the world, the responsibility for making things right. And here, letting it roll off of you and onto shoulders that can actually bear that kind of burden. Martin Luther's right-hand man was a guy by the name of Philip Melanchthon, and Philip was a worrier. He was a fretter. They were leading this big movement, and he agonized about every step of the way. He fretted about how things would turn out. He worried about their enemies, and at times he was paralyzed, and it certainly robbed him of joy. And finally, Martin Luther said to him, let Philip cease to rule the world. Let Philip cease to rule the world. In other words, commit your way to the Lord. There is a God, and you're not him, and that's good news. That's how you can begin to fret not. And then in verse 7, David says, be still and wait for the Lord. We've been singing this. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. When evil seems to be spreading its branches, fat and green leaves, it's easy to fret. But instead, David says, be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. In modern psychological theory, we'd call all of this cognitive reframing. What we're discovering is helpful now. David was teaching 3,000 years ago. That it's natural to fret about chaos and evil in the world, but there's a better way. Look less at the evil and look more at Jesus. Set your eyes on God. Set your eyes on his promises that are laid down for us in his word. And as Jesus put it, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all else will be added to you. That's the first part of meekness. And it mainly happens in the battlefield of your mind. Taking captive your thoughts. But that's not the totality of it. Because meekness also affects what you do. And David says, we are to be constructive in this world. Verse 3, trust 
in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. You see, fretting is fundamentally non-constructive. It takes you out of the game. Rather than doing things, that's what you're doing. You're fretting, you're worrying, you're anxious, you're angry. Listen to Psalm 37. Do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. This is a push to active pursuit, to building, toward engagement, toward being constructive. You know, I've been, uh, I just finished it yesterday, actually. I've been reading a book by a, a Swedish writer on reducing news consumption. And he basically is arguing in the book that modern-day fretting takes the form of doom-scrolling on the Internet. You know what doom-scrolling is, right? That's when you look at a bad thing and then you get you know, sad and overwhelmed and then you click through the hyperlinks. They all have hyperlinks so that you keep going down this line and you eat up more time and you're sad and you're overwhelmed and you're anxious and then they get you with the, the emotion they really want because that's the one that motivates you to keep clicking and that's anger, you're upset, And you can spend all kinds of time doing this. And in the book, he quotes these statistics that it's very common for a modern person to consume news in this way for up to 90 minutes a day, which may not sound like a lot, but that's 90 minutes a day is one full work day a week and one month of the year. Think about that. A whole month of your life last year might have been getting upset at the news. That is not a good way to spend your time. Do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. 90 minutes a day, one work day a week, one month a year. What kind of good could have been done with that time? What kind of conspiracies of kindness could have been hatched during that time? What service could be done to neighbors? What lonely friends could have been reached out to? What could you have learned in prayer and Bible study with that time? Meekness does not mean inactivity, but it's forsaking fretting and living on mission instead. And then, David says, not unrelatedly, verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. But shouldn't we be angry at injustice? Yes. Shouldn't evil appall us? Yes. Shouldn't we put ourselves to work to end those things? Yes. But listen, in the right way. In the way where we leave vengeance to the Lord and overcome evil with good. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 12. He said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. On a Saturday night, February of 1970, John Perkins and a couple of his associates went down to post bail for a group of college students that had been arrested. The students were not arrested for drugs or violence. They were arrested for organizing a movement to register black folks uh, to vote in Mississippi. And when Perkins spoke up, men that were there gathered around him. He was placed under arrest, and then he was violently beaten. The beating continued through most of the night. John was kicked in the groin, the ribs, the back, the head. He was stomped on. One man even rammed a fork up his nose and then down his throat. 
And he lay on the floor of a cell that night, drifting in and out of consciousness. And years later in his book, Let Justice Roll Down, John Perkins wrote about that night. And I'll just read a little bit of it to you. He said, I remember their faces so twisted with hate. It was like looking at demons. For the first time, I saw what hate had done to these people. They were poor. They saw themselves as failures. The only way they knew how to find a sense of worth was by beating us. Their racism made them feel like somebody. When I saw them, I just couldn't hate back. I could only pity them. I said to God that night, God, if you get me out of this jail alive, and I really didn't think I would get out alive. Maybe I was just trying to bargain with him. But God, if you'll get me out of this jail, I want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Everything is loaded up in this world to make us think that evildoers and unrighteousness will ultimately flourish, that that's the way to success, but the meek will inherit the land. Put away fretting. Put on meekness as your posture. But then secondly, we need to trust in God's providence. That is to know that God is working in this world on behalf of his people. He directs, he upholds, he provides. Many commentators think the Apostle Paul had Psalm 37 in his mind when he wrote 2 Corinthians. I'll just read a couple passages from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Chapter six, he says, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. And let's just think about verses 12 to 26. Psalm 37, for a moment through the lens of 2 Corinthians. Persecuted but not forsaken. David says, verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous. And it can even take on a fanatical kind of hatred. That's the part about gnashing of teeth at the end of verse 12. And that persecution can come at times with overwhelming force, verse 14. And yet, David says, the Lord sees the bigger picture. There is a defeat that God sees coming, and thus he can laugh in the face of evil. Verse 13, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. The emphasis here in these verses 16 to 20 and verse 25, the emphasis is on God's care for his people. Do you see all these uh, instances? Verse 17, the Lord upholds the righteous. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless. Verse 19, even the days of famine. God will provide. Now, verse 25 is a little harder to interpret. David says, I have been young and now I am old, and yet I have seen the right, I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Now, you read that and you might think initially, right? Is David saying that the righteous will never be poor? Or the righteous will never have a hard go of it, or that there will be no want. For those who are living correctly, living living obediently. Well, no, that can't be right. I mean, all of Psalm 37 is addressed uh, about when when, uh, bad things are happening to good people, so to speak. David himself found deprivation at times, and in many of the worst cases, not because of his wrongdoing, but because of the evil that had come to him from others, like Saul or Absalom, right? Evil done to him. 
So what does he mean here? Well, Alec Matir says, another commentator on this, he says, we have to remember that this psalm is written in the style of wisdom literature. And Matir says, wisdom sayings or proverbs are broadly true now and always ultimately true. They're broadly true now and always ultimately true. And so if Matir's right, and I think he is, Verse 25 is not meant as a way to judge whether somebody is godly or not by measuring their material success. Remember, that was the error of Job's friends. But rather, David is saying, despite appearances, the world is not actually set up for the wicked after all. It may seem that way for a while, but over the whole, stretch out the timeline long enough, the grain of the universe favors righteousness and godliness. And so then, verse 16 reads very much like a proverb. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. In other words, in God's economy then, the righteous, however poor, have better prospects in the long run than the ungodly. As having nothing yet possessing all things, making many rich. Verse 21, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous. And gives, verse 26, he is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Fretting almost always leads to a buckling down, doesn't it? I mean, if you're fretting, if you're really fretting, it almost always leads to a self-protectionism and therefore a closed-fistedness. Listen to what John Calvin says about this. He says, the thing that makes us more closed-fisted than we should be with our money is that we're too careful and look too much at possible dangers that might come upon us and so become too cautious and anxious to work out too fretfully, there's our word, how much we're going to need during our whole life and how much we lose when the smallest part is taken away. But the man who depends upon the Lord's blessing has his mind set free from these vexatious cares and at the same time, his hand is set free for, and the word Calvin uses, beneficence or generous giving. And by the way, this is no academic ivory tower thing for John Calvin. He wrote this during the persecution of the Huguenots in France. And so there were something like 10,000 refugees flooding into Geneva where Calvin was running the show. They're thinking about how to care for the poor and calling upon the godly to be generous. Fourthly, cast down but not destroyed. Verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Dale Ralph Davis wrote a little book on the Psalms called In the Presence of My Enemies, and he has a chapter in there on Psalm 37, and the title of the chapter is Steady, Steady, Steady. And it's a great title because there are ups and downs. There's chaos in this world. But the one who knows the providence of the Lord can be steady in the midst of that chaos. John Calvin again. uh, He lost his wife after nine short years of marriage. And he um, wrote a letter to his friend, William Farrell. Will Farrell, if you know. I always find it funny to think of John Calvin being friends with Anchorman. And this gives me a lot, probably more pleasure than needs to, but lost his wife after nine short years of marriage. And this is what he wrote to his friend Pharrell. He says, I do what I can to keep myself from being overwhelmed with grief. 
May the Lord Jesus support me under this heavy affliction, which would certainly have overcome me, had not he who raises up the prostrate, strengthens the weak, and refreshes the weary, stretched forth his hand from heaven to me. When God is with us, we can be cast down, but not destroyed, taken apart, but not taken away. So how do you keep from fretting? When the world seems to reward wickedness, we put on the posture of meekness. We know God's providence steadying you. And then finally, there's a perspective we need to have. Back to verse 35 and the tree for a moment. He says, I have seen a a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. In other words, he seems to be prospering. But that's just a snapshot, right? The game's not decided at halftime. We need to take the long view. Verse 36, but he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. And over and over again, the text here says that though the wicked prosper for a time, eventually there will be a reckoning and they will be cut off. Verse 9, verse 22, verse 28, verse 34, verse 38. Verse 2 says it'll be like grass that fades away and withers. Verse 20, like smoke that vanishes. But the long view is not meant to be solely negative, to scare you off from being conformed to the world, but it's also positive, meaning the kingdom of God belongs to those who choose the way of patient faith rather than self-assertion. Or, as Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And you know meekness is not easy to pursue in this world. Jesus knew where meekness ultimately was going to take him. It's going to take him directly to the cross. But he did not stay in the grave. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, as we said in the creed. He ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And there is this place right before the crucifixion in Jesus' trial. This is Matthew 26. He's before the high priest, Caiaphas. There's this place where Jesus says this. I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words... Jesus is saying, you are judging me now, but there will be a day where I'm going to be the judge, and I'm going to judge Caiaphas, and I'm going to judge Pilate, and I'm going to judge Herod, and you will stand before me. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 37. And when we have our lives hidden with him, we too will be hidden with him in his death, but ultimately resurrected to new life. And just like the meek will inherit the earth. Fret not and put your confidence in the Lord. Malcolm Geit is a poet and an Anglican priest. We used some of his uh, poems during, the, um, during Advent last year, but during the pandemic... And especially during lockdown, he found himself returning to the Psalms. He uh, had begun to write a poem based on each of the Psalms. And uh, this book came from it. It's called David's Crown, Sounding the Psalms. And each of the poems are in the same style. Each one has 15 lines, and they are all woven together in a corona, a crown of poems, with the last line of each poem becoming the first line 
of the next poem. And then the last line of the poem for Psalm 150 becomes the first line of the first psalm. And you see how it makes a circle. It makes a crown. He calls it a chaplet of praise to garland the head of the one who wore the corona spinia, that is the crown of thorns for us, and who has suffered with us through the corona pandemic. And I just want to read to you as we close his poem for Psalm 37. I'll fret no more for passing wickedness, no more than for the new-mown grass that fades to leave room for the growth and tenderness of fresh green leaves, the cool inviting glades of my new life in you, my heart's desire. The true sun rises now and soon the shades, the last black shades of night will back retire and mix no more with good. Then I will sing the song of my redemption in that choir where I whom you have made at last can bring my song to its beginning and its end. Till then I'll be content with each small thing your love provides and let the rich contend with one another for their fading wealth. For I have found my God and my true friend. Would you pray with me? Lord God, our true friend, you are infinitely good. And when we take refuge in you, we are eternally secure. Would you, even in this life that's full of trial and difficulty and seeming chaos, would you train us to delight in you and so fix our eyes on you that we might fret not and instead be still and wait patiently for you. We pray this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.